Uh, we're reading from Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. Now we're reading from uh, Titus chapter 2. All of chapter 2. What must be taught at various groups. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good, In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, and because they have nothing, because they have nothing to say bad about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted and that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. 
Do not let anyone despise you. The biggest motorbike that I've ever owned is actually the one that I currently own, which many of you already know what it looks like. 149cc of raw power. A little bit too raw, unfortunately. It's about the same size as my lawnmower. I once um, borrowed a friend's really expensive push bike, you know, cycle bike, um, really light, one of those sort of ones, and, and took it for a ride. And he thought it was hilarious when I said in surprise that it had about as much acceleration as my motorbike has. <laughs> Still for sale on Gumtree, by the way, if anyone's interested. In fact, the only time that I've ever ridden a real motorbike was when my brother-in-law had one for a short time, and he wanted me to have a go. And he said to me, I'm going to stand up here on the balcony where you could see this stretch of road just beyond it. He said, ride round, and when you get to the stretch of road, just let it go, just hit the throttle and see what happens. What happened was that I thought I was going to die. The beast of a thing, I can't even remember what it was, it absolutely roared to life and accelerated like nothing I'd ever experienced before. I felt like a sack of potatoes strapped to an engine with wheels, except the problem was I wasn't strapped, I was holding on for dear life and it felt like my legs were just flying out behind me, even though they weren't really. I've never felt power like that before. It was terrifying, it was exhilarating. In Titus 2, Paul is telling us that behind the Christian life is a terrifying, exhilarating power. We may not realise it, but we are basically strapped to an engine that drives everything that we do. But before we get there, before we kind of lift the hood and have a look at the engine, let me remind you what we've seen so far in Titus. We've seen that Paul is writing this letter as an apostle, He's been given the job straight from God to tell people about eternal life through Jesus. And as he speaks, remember, what he wants to see happen is people coming to faith in Jesus. And he wants people, he wants to see people so impacted by the truth of God's message that their lives are transformed by it. We then saw that Paul writes to Titus and tells him to appoint leaders in the church who hold fast to this message of eternal life through Jesus. People who have faith in Jesus alone, people whose lives make it just completely obvious that they're transformed by God's message. And then that way, these leaders can encourage the people in the church to know and to live by God's message. And they can also correct people when they corrupt it. And this brings us to to the start of our chapter today. Paul starts by saying that Titus needs to be different to those people who corrupt the message. In verse 1, he says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And this is our first point. Teaching sound doctrine is incomplete without teaching the appropriate response to sound doctrine. See, Paul makes it crystal clear that flowing out of a healthy teaching will be healthy living. And if you look down the chapter, or you remember as it was read, just have a look down, you'll see that Paul gives examples of of what this healthy living looks like. Now, this is not a complete list here, it's just a sample of appropriate living that flows from sound doctrine. But today, I don't actually want to start here with this point. I want us to end here, 
Because Paul says that there's a, a power behind healthy living that drives it. And if we start by looking at healthy living without looking at the power that drives it, then we'll actually be in danger of corrupting the healthy teaching just like the people that we saw last week. You've got to know the healthy teaching to know the healthy living that flows from it. And this isn't just a theoretical mistake that we could make. It's actually human nature to miss the power behind healthy living. It's human nature to to rip the engine out that drives the car. Every religious way of thinking, every human spiritual way of life, every religion, every natural human way of doing things is to think that we drive our own healthy living. We're actually experts at at taking the engine out of the car and trying to drive it with our legs. But in the second half of our chapter today, Paul lists the hood for us and he shows us the V8 engine, the, the power that drives everything. Look at the second part of the chapter, verse 11. Why teach that sound doctrine leads to sound living? This is why. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. If someone said to me, what does God's grace mean for you? I'd probably say something like it means I'm saved or it means I'm forgiven or it means I'm I'm right with God through Jesus. I'm not sure that my first instinct would be to say this, that God's grace teaches me. But Paul says that God's grace that brings salvation, it's the power that drives everything else in the Christian life and it exercises that power because it teaches us. Let's have a closer look at exactly what God's grace teaches us in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people... It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. There are three things that the grace of God teaches us here. And this brings us to our next point. It teaches us to say no, it teaches us to say yes and it teaches us to wait. Did you see that? Have a look again. We're to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and instead we're to say yes to self-control, being upright and godly, and the grace of God teaches us to wait. See, this chapter's not about one appearance only, it's about two appearances. First, the appearance of God's saving grace with the coming of Jesus to die for us, and then second, in verse 13, our hope, what we're waiting for, is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Two appearances. The second, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're living between Jesus' two appearances. And God's grace shown in Jesus' appearance teaches us moment by moment to say no, to say yes, and to wait. But how? How does it do that? You know, we've heard what the grace of God teaches us, but we haven't really thought yet about how it teaches us. For a long time, I'd read this passage and I just couldn't see the link between the grace of God and what it teaches us. I don't know if you've been the same with this passage. To me, it sounded a bit like this. There's milk in the fridge, so leave your shoes at the door. 
I can understand both statements, but I just can't understand how they're linked. Well, this passage today, it deepens our understanding of the link between what God has done and how that affects what we do. How is God's grace the power behind everything we do? What's the link? Well, there's actually several, and we see the first one in verse 14. We wait for the second appearing of Jesus, who at his first appearing, when he came to earth, verse 14, gave himself for us. The love of Jesus is the first link. Not a soft, sentimental love, a deep, courageous love that drove him to give himself, to sacrifice himself for us. Does the sacrifice of our God and Saviour teach us to say no and to say yes and to wait? It does teach us, doesn't it? The most powerful way to train an animal, they say, is not with a stick, but with kindness. The most powerful way to bring up children is not with threats and harshness, but with love. Jesus' love is the most powerful kind, absolute self-sacrifice, And love that powerful will teach us. It'll teach us to answer it with love. Now, it's not merely that we're debtors. You know what I mean? I'm currently a debtor to the Commonwealth Bank. Every month, I pay back my home loan instalments. Now, I'm glad that they gave me a loan, but I don't really love them. Is that wrong? I don't know. Since the money goes out of my account, I'm not really... I'm not really loving adding to their excessive profits. The link between Jesus' love and how we live, it's not just that we now owe God a lot. That's not how it works. That's often how I've thought of it in the past. We owe God, so it's our duty to be thankful and to do good. Technically, that's true, but it's always been true. We owe God our all because He made us. But the grace of God, it's not seeking to teach us to pay reluctant instalments in gratitude. Now, it's far more powerful than that. Think about what exactly it is that we're debtors to. The song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, puts it well. There's a line in this song that says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. God's grace is such a great thing to be indebted to exactly because it is grace. Any debt that grace seeks to recover from us will only ever be what's gracious for us to pay. In other words, every repayment to grace is really just another withdrawal from grace. Responding to grace is receiving grace. Loving God in response to His love is just to be drowned in gift after gift after gift. It's not reluctant gratitude that we're taught. God's love powerfully teaches us to give Him love in return. But the link between the grace of God and how that teaches us doesn't stop there. Jesus, in verse 14, gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. What Jesus did for us was to redeem us, it was to buy us back, that's what redeem means. We had the desperate need to be bought back from the tyranny of of wickedness, literally 
lawlessness. Do you see how this teaches us? I don't know about you, but I've rarely felt the need to be redeemed. See, I I don't think of myself as a slave. It's not where my mind naturally goes. In fact, I'm inclined to call my wickedness, my lawlessness, by a different name. Freedom. Freedom from restraints. Freedom to do whatever I feel like. To enjoy life the way I want to. That's my natural way of thinking. But God the Son, hanging on a cross in agony, the one truly beautiful person in this world, dying in my place, facing God's anger for my lawlessness, my wickedness. See, that powerfully smashes through my enslaved mind and it wakes me up to reality. It teaches me. It teaches me that sin is not freedom. Sin is death on a cross. Sin is facing God's anger. Now, we know, of course, that we'll never face God's anger when we have faith in Jesus. That's what sound doctrine teaches us. But nevertheless, at the same time, it teaches us just how truly awful sin is. If I see sin for the horror that it is, for the consequences that it deserves, for its contribution to the suffering of Jesus who loves me, how can I possibly want to embrace sin? See, if I've been taught by grace, how can I possibly say, oh well, what does it matter? It doesn't matter if I indulge in a bit of pornography. Jesus will pick up the bill. It's not going to cost me anything. He can just add it to whatever he's dealing with on the cross. That, of course, is what we're doing every time we sin, no matter what it is. But grace teaches us to keep turning away from that kind of thinking in horror. The grace of God powerfully teaches me to recognise sin for the absolute rubbish that it is. But the link gets even deeper. Jesus gave himself for us, verse 14, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you see how this teaches us? When you know you've been made someone significant and you know that you've been equipped with what you need to perform that role, it motivates you. I mean, I still remember the day I got my my car license, my P's. I couldn't wait to kick my mum out of the car and do a few laps around the street. Or the day that I got my registration as a pharmacist, finally, couldn't wait to unleash myself on the world of healthcare. We've been purified, made Christ's own. Knowing that teaches us to be who we are, Christ's own people, literally his special chosen people treasured possession, a people that he's chosen to be passionate about doing good and a people that he's qualified to do good. We tend to think about salvation as being about escaping the consequences of sin and of course that's true but it's just a a drop in the ocean. Salvation is about being saved for a purpose, it's about belonging for all eternity to Christ and living for all eternity for Christ. See, salvation, it's not so much like the entry into Adelaide Oval. Salvation is like playing on the field at the, at the Adelaide Oval. It's like being in the game. 
It's not so much an event. Salvation is an eternal relationship. What I'm saying is that living as Christ's treasured possession is salvation. Not simply escaping God's anger. What took Jesus to the cross was saving people from wickedness and then owning them to live and to move and to have their being in him. As many of you know, I once found a um, coffee machine on the side of the road. It was a mess. That's what it looked like. But I completely stripped it back and I cleaned it on the inside and the outside and I descaled it, changed seals and steam wands and shower screens and all that sort of thing. Got it chemically stripped back to the stainless steel and then powder coated, as you can see. And as you can tell, when it was finished, it was a treasured possession. Ready? But you know how it looks on the outside? And even knowing that it's not disgusting on the inside anymore, knowing that it's been cleaned on the inside, that means nothing to me if it's not pumping out amazing coffee, pulling shots that are breathtaking. When it's humming and golden coffee is just dripping from the group head. Man, I'm proud of it then. Gee, I love it then. Now that's me with a coffee machine. It's a little bit weird. But what's not weird is that's Jesus with us. When we are living as his chosen people, purified, being who he's made us to be. How motivating is that? Doesn't know that, knowing that powerfully teach us to want to be who he's made us to be? The final thing that the grace of God teaches us that I'm going to talk about today is back in verse 13. We wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The horror that Jesus endured at the cross, he considered a worthwhile cost for the joy that's coming. When we see that Jesus' return is our blessed hope, in other words, our future, our destiny, doesn't that powerfully teach us to wait for that day and to want to live for that day now? It does. Well, we've lifted the hood and we've seen the engine just a little bit you know we haven't got much time today so I've been a little bit like don't touch that don't take that cover off but still we've seen we've seen what is there in the engine there's plenty more we could explore but now it's time to get behind the wheel or at least it's time to think about what it looks like to be behind the wheel now we go back to our first point to look at the appropriate response to the sound doctrine that we've just seen And what we see is that Paul says that God's grace has slightly different things to teach us. It's the same engine behind it all, but his grace expresses itself slightly differently. This is um, our next point. Our age, gender and context are relevant to an appropriate response to sound doctrine. But just before we look at that, people today are rejecting the idea that gender is important. At least they are in theory anyway. Uh, In practice, I don't think people manage it that well. And like in all these things, there's, there's some truth, there's some value in what they're saying. Strict cultural definitions of gender can be oppressive. The Bible doesn't push oppressive gender stereotypes. It never says this is exactly what a man's got to be like. And this is exactly what a woman's got to be like. It doesn't say that. 
but it does celebrate gender. And the Bible celebrates the differences in gender roles. And so what the Bible has to say about gender sounds completely foreign in our world today. The Bible refuses to throw out what our world is throwing out. Gender exists, not just male and female sex, gender. Gender is intrinsic and even though it can have different cultural expressions and also different corruptions, God sees gender as a positive thing, capable even of expressing His grace. So let's look at the first age and gender that Paul tells Titus to address and they're older men. We see it in verse 2. We see how they should respond to God's grace. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. What do you think it means that Paul says that older men need to be taught these things? It means that these things don't come naturally to them, right? It doesn't come naturally with age. These things come with being taught by the grace of God. It's an interesting list of things, don't you think? Temperate means level-headed, self-controlled, worthy of respect. Now, I've been talking about the power of the the grace of God, like it's, you know, some beast, a Harley or something like that, or a V8 engine. But maybe this list sounds a little bit bland. Maybe to you it sounds a bit more like driving a Volvo or something like that. Looking at you, Zach George. (laughs) Does it sound a little bit bland to be a level-headed, respectable, self-controlled man? As a culture, we don't necessarily value these things that much. At least, we don't value the idea of these things. But when you see them in practice in a man, there are very few people who don't love what they see. When you think about the numbers of marriages ruined, families destroyed, churches tainted and and lives wasted with alcohol, with sex outside of marriage, with money with harsh words, immature behaviour, selfishness. When you think about that, then you realise that men who are level-headed and worthy of respect and self-control, they're not bland at all, they're remarkable. Men like this are healthy in faith, not living in their wives' spiritual shadow. They've got a real relationship with Jesus themselves. They're healthy in love. They work hard at loving their wives, at loving their kids, at, at loving the people around them. And they're healthy in endurance. They keep going in that and going and going. Well, Paul moves on to the next group in verse 3. He says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. The idea behind being reverent is that their life is in service of their God. And instead of pulling people down with their words or being enslaved by alcohol, they're to be slaves of God, building people up. See that? They're to serve God by teaching what's good. It's not just Paul who's to teach. It's not just Titus or the elders. Older women also have a critical role in this. If you're an older woman here, are you playing that critical role? Are you teaching like this? Don't sit back and wait for younger women to come to you. It seems to me that Paul's putting the responsibility on you to make this happen. Now, of course, we have no older women in this church here, right? 
Nobody wants to be in that category. <laughs> but basically, we're all older than someone, whether you're 25, 45, or 95, you can still be involved in teaching younger women. We're missing out when we don't cross-pollinate between generations. In verse 4, we see what older women can teach younger women. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. There are a couple of really difficult countercultural ideas in here, so I'm going to do what Paul says and leave this to the older women to teach. <laughs> I'm joking, we'll look at them, but unfortunately we don't actually have a lot of time to go into great detail. But we do have a question time afterwards, so if there's something that it prompts, more than happy to talk about it then. Now, most of us are okay with the first one, you know, loving husbands, loving children, being self-controlled and pure. But being busy at home, it sounds oppressive, doesn't it? And our minds jump all over the place. Like, is he saying that wives shouldn't work? Is he saying that domestic duties are entirely the domain of wives? Now, can I just say that if we approach this and any passage in the Bible from a a suspicious mindset with a hostile kind of mind, then we'll probably never understand it and worse, we'll never actually get the benefits from it that God intends for us. This is God's Word and God always has our best interests at heart. So we need to humbly consider what He is and isn't saying to us in this part. Now what this clearly says is that married women should be engaged in family and home life. Not because it comes naturally to a woman, it's more likely he's saying this because it's not easy, because it it doesn't come by default. The temptation to neglect family duties for whatever reason is a real one. Selflessly devoting yourself to your family flourishing that comes from being taught by the grace of God is not easy. Now, why does Paul say this to younger women and not to men as well? Well, I don't, we don't have the exact reasons, but as I said before, gender matters to God. The Bible doesn't define strict, exact gender roles or stereotypes, but the Bible does celebrate the critical and the unique role of a woman in the family life. The grace of God should drive women to use their God-given gifts to care for their families. Now, our culture raises different questions gives us different opportunities and different challenges to what that might look like compared to them back then. But whatever it is, whatever the situation is, loving our families and seeing them flourishing, Paul says, is an outworking for younger women of the grace of God. Okay, what about wives being subject to their husbands? The Bible consistently says that men and women are equals. But there's a difference in our roles in the marriage relationship. Husbands are to lay down their life. They're to die to their own selfish interests in the service of their wife. And wives, in the Bible, are to encourage that kind of selfless leadership. Now, understood rightly, this is a beautiful thing, but unfortunately, in our fallen world, our minds jump to all sorts of corruptions of this. Evil men who've twisted this. 
Instead, our minds should jump to Jesus, to his example. I mean, think about Jesus, equal with the Father. Himself God is happy to submit himself to the Father's will. Submission is not about being demeaned. And can I just say on the side, if that's happening to you, if your husband is demeaning you, it's not at all what God has in mind. If your husband is demeaning you, whether it's physical or emotional abuse or control, this is never okay. And if it's happening to you, please speak to someone. Me, or perhaps you might feel more comfortable speaking to someone on the leadership team, Lydia Kennedy or Val Smythe, who was praying just before. But please do something about it. This is not at all what God intends. The kind of relationship that He intends is not at all about oppression. It's a relationship that flows out of the grace of the gospel. It's about reflecting the heart of God in our relationships, in our marriages. I, I think that the word submit has become tainted for us and it's lost its meaning uh, because of how people have abused it. I think we need another word and as I think about it, respect is about the best word that we've got. But it's respect in more than just a superficial way, it's a deep commitment to honour your husband by encouraging any steps they take to lead in a selfless, responsible way. Well, Paul then moves on to young men in verse 6. And he says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Are young men being ripped off here? Paul's given all this advice to the others, but to the young men, all they get is be self-controlled. Are they missing out? Self-control, by the way, is mentioned six times in the book of Titus, five times in this chapter. Each age group and each gender need to be self-controlled in response to the gospel. And young men particularly need to let God's grace teach them self-control. But there's actually a whole heap more for young men here as well. They're not getting ripped off. Look at verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Titus is to to set them an example in absolutely everything, always doing good. And notice the reason why in verse 8, so that those who oppose you may not, may be ashamed, sorry, may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And as you can see, this is very similar to what Paul said to younger women in verse 5, so that no one will malign the Word of God. And it's similar to what Paul says to slaves in verse 10, so that in every way the teaching about God, uh, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. As we let the grace of God teach us, as we're powerfully changed by what Jesus has done for us, our lives show just how beautiful God's message is. I mean, isn't that amazing? Our lives show God's beauty. When they accuse us of being misogynistic, oppressive, judgmental, killjoys, whatever it is, when they see the way that we treat each other, the way that the grace of God powerfully shapes us, it should leave them without any bad thing to say. Not because we're meeting the world's standard, we're pandering to what they want to see, but because the beauty of God's grace is clearly evident in our lives and it works. 
and it takes us to heights unimagined because we're driven by God's power and not our own. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. We're strapped to a powerful engine, the grace of God. Too often, sadly, we forget this. Too often we try to live the Christian life in our own power. But we need to remember, we're not driven by the desire to be loved by God. That's not what drives us. We're already loved. We're not driven by the need to be saved from God's anger. We're we're already saved. We're not even driven by wanting to be treasured by Christ. We already are. We're not driven by the need to control our destiny. We're already destined for greatness when Jesus comes back. We already have all these things freely through Jesus who gave himself for us. The grace of God drives us. Let it drive you. Just touch the throttle and hold on for the ride. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your grace shown in the appearance of Jesus, his death in our place. Lord, we've just scratched the surface of that grace, the depth of your love. Lord, we've just scratched the surface in seeing the horror of our sin and yet your acceptance of us. Lord, we haven't even begun to see just how glorious the end will be and just how much will be your treasured possession and yet, Lord, it's enough to help us see that we need to be driven by your grace and your grace alone in our lives. Lord, help this sound doctrine drive sound living. Lord, may we be a a church where your grace is overflowing in every way, in every heart, every home, every workplace, every conversation. Lord, help us not to be ever driven by guilt or duty or an attempt to earn your favour. Instead, Lord, Help us always to be driven by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.